Good evening. You are listening to Marooned in the Deepest Darkness of the Ultimate Nightmare Abyss. With Zero HP Lovecraft. This is episode one on reading, writing, literacy, elitism, and metaphysics. Having read so many of your stories, I wanted to share my thought process for judging and explain how I think about stories. There are, of course, the bare concerns regarding prose quality or technical skill in the management of pacing, framing, foreshadowing, and these types of things. And for a story to be good, all of these things must be good. For many aspiring writers, they're still struggling with these fundamentals of composition. Indeed, this is a lifelong struggle because we can always find ways to improve our technical abilities. And there's no trick to improving at this. You must spend time reading good books and you must practice copying their structure and flow. But when you're starting out, it is a common pitfall to be too ambitious. Do not begin by trying to write the great novel of your life or by imitating intricate stories that cleverly break the rules of composition. Modern and postmodern stories have violently rejected such things as narrative structure and they make poor models. The artfulness of a writer like Barth or Pynchon or Wallace can only exist as an adjunct to the classical forms of storytelling which they subvert. But aspiring writers tend to mistake such colorful detours for the main road, and they end up writing from a place of insincerity because they are trying to capture a certain feeling these writers have given them without understanding the source of that feeling. It is easy to mock technically deficient writing, but in truth, technically competent writing is table stakes. The real game begins only once you are seated at the table. The real game is played in a metaphysical arena. Now this word, metaphysics, this may be a vague word, and it's not always clear what people mean by it. But the definition I will offer you today is a bit different to what you will find on Wikipedia. If the plot of the story is the what of it, as I've said before, it is not just a sequence of events, but a sequence of human events, a sequence of intentions and emotions. Then the metaphysics of the story is the why. It is the level of mechanics which governs the physics, the level of mechanics above the physics. To illustrate this, here's an example from one of the Passage Prize submissions. My purpose here is not to insult, so to the author of this story, I thank you for submitting it. It was technically competent. You made it through the gate, and I'm not trying to pick on you. I hope you will keep writing. There was a story I read about an arrogant chef who ran a Michelin star restaurant. In the story, the chef does not believe in the possibility of gluten intolerance. One of his guests indicates a gluten allergy and he lies to her about serving her special food to accommodate her because he believes that spoiled yuppies make up food allergies for attention. Halfway through her meal, 
the gluten intolerant guest goes into anaphylactic shock. This is perhaps not realistic, but that's beside the point. As the paramedics take the gluten intolerant girl away to the hospital, the chef hears her mutter something under her breath. He thinks she says the word fatter. In his own mind, this was some kind of a witchcraft curse. The chef becomes ravenously hungry, eating all the food in his walk-in refrigerator, overindulging when he should be tasting, eating gallons of ice cream, donuts, hot dogs. He needs to be snacking constantly. He gains 100 pounds in a matter of weeks, but nothing can save his appetite. So he finds the girl's number from his reservation list, and he calls her, and he asks her if she cursed him. She tells him she doesn't know what he's talking about. But his appetite and his physical deterioration have begun to cause real problems for him. His restaurant food quality declines, and he loses the respect of his staff. So he calls the girl again, and he begs her to meet with him, which she does. She tells him she doesn't know anything about curses, but that she thinks he's suffering from bad karma, owing to his own self-knowledge of his guilt for poisoning her. She says he should apologize to her and try to make amends in order to fix his karma. He does this, and immediately his hunger is satisfied, and his life returns to normal. Now, is this a good story? It is simplistic. Maybe if we're blunt, it's a bit childish. But that's not a mark against it. In fact, the simplicity of this story makes it perfect to illustrate what I mean by metaphysics. I've just related the plot of the story. To be succinct, we could say this story is about a man who fails to show sufficient consideration for his fellow, and who suffers a consequence for it, and who finds redemption. If we put it like this, it sounds like it would be a very good story, even a Christian story. But this is not so. Because if we look closer, we must ask the questions, what is the man's sin specifically? Who or what is the thing that punishes him? And finally, what is the source of his salvation? His sin is that he's a chef who's ignored a food allergy. Some allergies can be very deadly. The chef is entrusted with the care of his patrons, and here the chef violates that trust. So this is genuinely an immoral action. He is guilty, at least, of dishonesty. But now, where does his punishment come from? At first it is implied to be a curse, so it comes from the person who is wronged, but then later we see it was all in his head. There was no curse. The punishment came from his own mind, from his own conscience. We can say that God spoke to him through his conscience, but this is not what the story implies. At most, it appeals to an impersonal cosmic force, to karma. But if we read the story literally, the punishment came from himself. It came from his own heart. And how does he find redemption? By the same path. His apology to the girl is a repentance to alleviate his guilt. His feeling of guilt, which he feels himself. The story makes this clear. The curse was a punishment that he subconsciously imposed on himself. He's his own God. And therefore, if he felt no guilt, there would have been no sin. This is the first metaphysical lens we can look through, what we may call the soteriological frame, which means pertaining to salvation, 
What is the sin? What is the punishment? And what is the redemption? The moral universe of this story is that of a secular humanist. God and sin are socially constructed, purely psychological abstractions. And there are many, even on the far right, who might agree with this model. There are some who would even say this is a Nietzschean model, but this is not so. In Nietzsche's moral universe, the purpose of man must be to aim at something which is greater and higher than man. But this story aims at nothing. In this story, there is nothing higher than man. Yes, the story invokes karma, but not as a transcendental moral obligation according to Hindu cosmology, only as a mirror to the protagonist's own internal state. Karma is a metaphor here, much as some liberals might say God is a metaphor. So we see this is neither a Christian nor a Nietzschean story. This is a humanist story, a story where human feelings are ontologically primary, and moreover, it is a deeply feminine story. Woman's moral universe is entirely bounded by her own emotions, her feelings at the present moment. Humanist morality is fundamentally feminine. And now we can go even further. This humanist metaphysic is the foundational layer of the story. But now in the current year, it is surmounted by a second layer which we may call the intersectional frame. In this analysis, we disregard questions of sin and salvation because the answers are fixed and implicit in the humanist frame. Instead, we ask the questions which define so-called woke morality, which you may have seen abbreviated as who, whom. In the intersectional frame, we talk about the particulars of each character's race and sex, and so forth, and we interpret them as universal statements about all people who exist in those categories. We ask, who is doing what, and to whom are they doing it? In this story, we see that there are two characters, and they are both implicitly white, so there is no racial component, though one can always be manufactured out of a conspicuous absence. The most important thing to observe in this frame is that this story is about a man who fails to respect a woman. And moreover, he blames the woman for cursing him that we discover that she was innocent. And when he goes to her for redemption, she cannot give it to him. She is not his savior. But he must repent to her regardless. This is a perfect encapsulation of intersectional feminism. Women have no agency. They are sacred innocents. And man sins against them, but they have no power to forgive. Rather, a man must redeem himself by aligning himself with the feminine metaphysic. Notice also the nature of his sin in this case. It's that the woman has requested special consideration on the basis of an idiosyncratic weakness she possesses. Though it's true that some people can be harmed by gluten, it is a mathematical certainty that the majority of gluten disrespectors are participating in a psychosomatic diet fad, a kind of mass hysteria, which has been largely supplanted now by long COVID and transgenderism and so on. 
In any case, we see that this story is humanist, feminist, and anti-Christian, despite its seemingly unobjectionable themes of guilt and apology. The underlying trick of the intersectional frame, the trick of all critical readings, is to treat the story as an allegory for the interplay between various revolutionary identities and to anthropomorphize them, as if each race and each sex and each class is a single individual in your hunter-gatherer tribe. In this way, each category is reduced to a dyad consisting of the reader and the identity group as individual. In this way, we're tricked into feeling a sense of social obligation, not to an individual, but to a class, even though this is a non sequitur, and we're told it's bigoted if we reduce individuals to their identity group. But we're also blackmailed into treating identity groups as individuals. It is tempting here to say that we're overthinking it. Certainly, I can already hear some of my detractors saying this. They'll say, no one performs a conscious analysis in this way. They'll say a story can be just a story, and we do not need to project all of these allegorical neuroses upon it. But this is wrong in two ways. First, it is wrong on critical theory's own terms, which claims that these kinds of power relations are necessarily primary in all social interactions. And you may disagree. You may think that critical theory is a poisonous way to view the world, and you are correct. But if you think that, and you still engage in its power discourse, which demands that we make atonement for injustices against race or sex, then you're acting as a useful idiot on behalf of critical theory. You are reinforcing its moral calculus, even while denying that you are doing so. And I think we see many examples of this when we interact in the online world. It's possible that you are confused. Perhaps you're lying to yourself. Oh, the wokeness. The wokeness has gone too far. Many people say this, but they still agree in principle with the moral demands of wokeness. They only complain about the method. They may object to the procedural level of humanist egalitarian politics, but they're still sleeping because they've not found the space in their soul to reject its metaphysical claims. And now again, you might ask, why can't a story be just a story? This is wrong in a second way, because critical theory is correct in its assumption that all stories are didactic. The stories we tell each other teach us how to think about other people, about moral desert, about right and wrong. And the reason so many people subscribe to intersectional morality even while remaining ignorant of its metaphysical claims, is that we are saturated in stories which operate in its moral universe. The stories we learn, the who, whom of them, the nature of sin and salvation, all of these things are implicit in every sitcom, in every movie, in every children's cartoon, because we watch how the characters interact with each other, and we take those examples as normative. We take them as models that teach us how to interact with people and identity groups in our real lives. So these things become automatic. And if you learn to ask these questions that I'm showing you, if you learn to read the metaphysical claims of the stories in your life, then you realize 
that almost all modern storytelling privileges the feminine moral frame. Just like we see in this story about the chef and the gluten whore. by no means exhaustive. We've learned two ways now to examine the metaphysical content of a story. And we've seen how even a very simple story contains a metaphysical payload. We conduct this examination in the soteriological frame by asking, what is the sin? What is the punishment? What is the source of salvation? Note that a story can be Christian even if the source of salvation is not literally God because we are sensitive to allegory and to parable. But we pay special attention when the source of salvation is a human, or worst of all, a woman. The second frame we learned is the intersectional. Here we ask, who is the sinner and who is the redeemer? You can see how, in the intersectional frame, the sinner is supposed to be a person from a privileged identity group, white, male, healthy and normal, as opposed to colored, female, disabled, or queer. The great irony of the intersectional oppression stack is that it inverts the meaning of the word privilege. To call someone privileged is a method of disprivileging them. The new religion elevates blacks over whites because whites are privileged. What this means is that whites have fewer rights than blacks, the whites are just deliberately disprivileged. And this is said to be fair according to the playground logic of let your little sister have a turn. Colloquially, we call this putting your thumb on the scale. But let us backtrack a bit. Ideally, we would like to hear and tell only stories that reject the feminist metaphysic. The story should center, as they say, white, male, and sexually normal voices. Usually, the main character of a story is a sinner. That means the sinner will usually be a man, but if his sin is against women, or browns, or queers, then the story has AIDS. In a good story, the sin should never be racism, or sexism, or any such thing as this. In fact, those things are not sins, and we should never promote a story where these things are sins. To do so is to reinforce liberal, queer, egalitarian theories. And we desire to reject those things root and branch. Many people are eager to reject the excesses of liberalism, but they do not understand what they are rejecting. They do not understand how to reject it. We do this by rejecting the moral underpinnings of liberal thought, humanism, feminism, and egalitarianism. 
If we see a story that is built on these metaphysical foundations, that is a bad story, even if it is well written. This is how I think about the stories I have judged for the passage prize. Now we will apply this same analysis to another story, and this is maybe unfair to the previous, because I want to talk about the story that I chose as the winner. That story is called Georgia Buddha, and is an intricate story. I would even say it is a breathtaking story. I read it again just now, and I am enamored with how beautifully it is told, and also with its moral clarity. In this story, there is a rich man, a self-made man, who has worked his way up from poverty, and now he owns a mansion that has many children and domestic servants. This man is named Buddy. And Buddy's oldest son was born of his first wife, who died of cancer many years ago. He is remarried and has many children by his second wife. This story is set in the 1960s, or possibly the early 70s. And we learn that Buddy's oldest son, Rob, has dropped out of college and has joined a hippie commune in the woods. He now demands to be called Siddhartha. And this hurts Buddy, because his son has turned away from his birth name, and from his father's gifts to him, he's living decadently in the woods. Buddy tries to understand his son. He listens to the popular music that is inspiring him, and he reads books about Buddhism, including the book Siddhartha by Hermann Hesse, which his son has given to him. Then, Buddy goes out to the woods, to the commune, and he has a confrontation with his son. Through dialogue, we learn that the son, who is now called Sid, resents Buddy, because his first wife, Sid's mother, died of cancer while Sid was at a boarding school, and Buddy immediately took a new wife. Moreover, we learn there is an element of racial resentment. Buddy's first wife was black, and Buddy's second wife was white. But this is never explicitly stated. Sid says many hurtful things to his father, publicly, in front of all his hippie friends, and Buddy becomes very angry. But he endures all of this abuse out of love, and finally he persuades his son to step outside. Sid tries to accuse Buddy of racism, of sexism, of negligence. We see that he believes his father never loved his black first wife that he couldn't wait to be rid of her to marry a white woman. And we also learn that his father is innocent of these allegations. Finally, they speak man to man after a brief fight, which Buddy wins. What Buddy wanted for his son through all of this was for him to go back to school, to be strong, to be a good man, and to care for his future. And we see that finally, in the last moments of the story, Sid comes to understand his father's love for him. But he says, and I'm quoting now, boy, it takes rich men to subsidize holy men. Hell, Jesus Christ had rich women following behind him. So don't act like you're better than I am, because you're spending my money trying to find your soul and way in life. We realize that Sid thought he was the Buddha, rejecting his life of riches to pursue spiritual growth. But we, the readers, now realize that Buddy is the enlightened one. There's even a phonetic similarity between Buddy and Buddha. And for me, this association only becomes apparent as the story concludes. The first thing we should notice about this story is that it is a variation 
are the biblical parable of the prodigal son, which you can find in the 15th chapter of Luke. So right away, we see that our sculptor has chosen beautiful raw materials, fine stone from which he will release these wonderful forms. Buddy is the rich man in the story, the father, and in Jesus' parable, this character is metaphorically God. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. I found two different ways to read this story, and there's a hallmark of any very good story that it may be read in multiple senses. So first, we will examine the soteriology. What is the sin? It is that a son has turned away from his father and rejected his care. Next, what is the punishment? This part is vague. In Jesus' parable, the son squanders all of his father's wealth. This is the wage of his sin. But in our story, the son has not yet squandered it. So if there is a punishment, it is his estrangement from his father, it is his self-imposed exile and the resentment he feels. Very well. What is the salvation? Notice that Buddy, the father, lives in a kind of heaven. He is rich, he is successful, he has friends and great influence. He has a beautiful wife, and she has born loving children for him. But he leaves his heaven, and he descends into the earth, a place that is described in the story as being muddy. A woman walks barefoot in the mud. The commune is in a log cabin with no running water. So the father leaves heaven and comes to earth, and he endures these pains on behalf of his son, and then he saves him because he's willing to go through this pain. Now we can see that despite its Buddhist trappings, this is a deeply Christian story. It is a story about a father saving his son by enduring suffering on his behalf. This story glorifies fatherhood. It is metaphysically correct. But now we can perform an intersectional reading. Who is the sinner? It is the son, a boy of mixed race. And who is his redeemer? His father, a straight white man. This is so obvious, it barely needs to be said. But how can we read this allegorically? We could take it as a story of the white man's burden, that through pain endured on behalf of love, the white man tries to uplift the Negro. That is one reading. Certainly it is problematic for intersectional types, even though it is the literal metaphysic of all anti-racism, a metaphysic which they vehemently deny because they are either evil or stupid. But to me, it is not a satisfying reading, because the mulatto son cannot help his nature. We like to joke about this. We say, being black is a choice, unlike being a communist, which is something you are born with. To be more serious, there is a sense in which this is literally true. Black Americans do have the option to embrace what is called black culture, or to reject it and choose white culture which, paradoxically, may consist of loudly proclaiming racial resentment against whites. In the current year, there is almost nothing whiter. And that is effectively the choice that Buddy is giving to his son. As Nietzsche reminds us, a man of mixed blood is always at war within himself, and Buddy is giving his son a chance to choose one side or the other. The second reading of the story is to notice that whatever sins Sid has committed, it is
Buddy, who made him that way. Buddy chose his first wife, his black wife. So we can also read that Buddy is the sinner, and that his sin is miscegenation. The punishment, then, is that his son must pay for the father's sin. And in this reading, redemption comes when he pays his son's debts for him by convincing him to accept the salvation of white culture. This second reading is also Christian. God has made you this way, given you the capacity to be either a saint or a sinner, and has come to you to offer you salvation, paying your debt for you because, in a way, it is a debt he owes to himself. We must be very careful here because this can easily veer into heresy. Keep in mind that we are only dealing with allegory, and if we extend the metaphor too far, then it becomes overextended and it will collapse. Now, two further questions. First, did the author intend these readings? We might imagine that most men, when they tell a story, do not have such a theological treatise in mind. And perhaps this author did, but it is not necessary for him to have this intention in order to produce something this sophisticated. It is only necessary to tell the truth, because the true metaphysic is fractally manifest in everything underneath it. Second question, are these the only readings? The answer, of course, is no. Postmodern is a dirty word to some people, but the key insight of postmodern thought is that with enough sophistry, any reading is possible of any text. For this reason, many people associate postmodernism with sophistry, and they are not entirely wrong to do so. But it's true that a clever exegesis can seem to invert the meaning of a text. So when we ask these soteriological or metaphysical questions, we must be aware that other answers are possible, and that clever enemies delight in finding ways to subvert something beautiful. I'll give you an example of a clever subversion. We could read the above story through a psychoanalytical lens. In the psychoanalytical lens, we start with several assumptions. First, that the characters have repressed desires, desires which may be socially unacceptable and which they themselves do not realize. Second, that the characters' repressed desires are revealed through their actions, but only after the characters have convinced themselves that they have no other choice but to act them out. Third, that even when they do this, they are not conscious of the desire as a desire, and that the desire is born out of the need to keep score with the other people in their lives. They want to feel they are getting as much out of the other person as they are giving. So when we read the story in this frame, we assume that the characters all conform to this psychological model. Who is Sid keeping score with? The options are his father, his dead mother, his friends, or his younger siblings. And we can pick any of these, depending on what meaning we want to squeeze from this stone. The most realistic choice is his friends, who are all engaged in virtue-signaling spiral over who hates their father the most. This is implicit. And Sid, in this case, has already made narrative of anti-racism, anti-sexism, and anti-capitalism, which equip him to participate in this holiness spiral. 
staying even with or beating his friends at the father resentment game is a huge part of his motive. But this happens off camera and is not germane to the mechanics of the story, so we need to exclude it from our reading. We learn that Sid has hated his father ever since his mother died. He blames his father for the death of his mother because he thinks that he neglected her when she was ill. So he refuses to accept his father's gifts and he hurts himself, Sid hurts himself, in the process. It hardly seems that he needs to repress the desire to hurt his father, but he will tell himself that he has no choice, that his father is a capitalist, a sexist, a racist, and that is why he must do these things. In this reading, Sid becomes sympathetic. Poor, confused, unenlightened Sid, cutting off his nose to spite his face. Sid will not think of his actions this way. He will think instead that he is pursuing some spiritual path. That's the story he's built for himself with the help of his friends. But psychoanalysis believes that these kinds of baser, personal motives are primary. What about the father? What score is Buddy trying to equalize? Sid's dead mother has absconded from the scene, leaving him with the burden of fatherhood. She has gotten more out of Buddy than Buddy got out of her, so Buddy will look for a way to make it even. We see that his son reminds him of his dead wife, so the psychoanalytic reading is that he tries to settle the score with his son. He does this by physically striking him, by trying to control him. But no, enough. This teaching nauseates me. But there be no mistake here. I believe this reading is bad. It is false. But it is also common. It is the way that the left will read this story. And I want to show you how they smuggle their own twisted metaphysics into a story by adding a priori assumptions in the form of psychoanalytic axioms. Notice how the information that was added, the ideas about repression and scorekeeping, are not present in the story at all. In fact, when you read the story, you will see that Buddy has a very grounded view of his first wife. But psychoanalysis cannot accept this. It demands pathology because it is a hammer which sees every person as a nail. Notice also how there is no sin in the psychoanalytic frame. Sid has no agency at all. He's just reacting to the circumstances that have shaped him. The only sinner now is Buddy, and his sin isn't anything he did. His sin is his inexorable nature. He can't help but repress his desire. He can't help but oppress his son. So the insertion of psychoanalytical metaphysics is the undoing of all metaphysics. The only salvation that remains now is for Buddy and Sid to both go to therapy. How convenient for the, for the psychoanalysts. This is another possible reading, but it's a reading we should reject. It's a backdoor to the same liberal metaphysics that we're trying to escape. You know that old chestnut. Men would rather submit a work of original fiction to a bunch of anonymous online reactionaries than go to therapy. And what I'm telling you is their preference is rational and just.
We have been talking about how to read, and we have covered a lot of ground already. When we talk about reading, we think maybe of mere literacy, which is just the ability to turn markings on a page into words in your head. We call this reading. But there's another skill, which is only barely related to this. It is not the act of decoding graphemes into phonemes, but the act of decoding morals out of metaphors, which I've been explaining by way of examples. No one taught me this ability. I did not read it in any book. I did not learn it from any teacher. I do not know if it can be taught, though I have tried to teach it to you here today. We have seen how clever manipulation of the symbols in a story can be used to subvert or invert its intended meaning. And for many people, they will not bother to read, and if they do, they will only read what they expect to read, that is, they will fail to confront the ideas which are constituted by the words they find on the page. You cannot read a story in a vacuum. All the other stories you know will shape your expectations. For people who are inundated by leftist metaphysics, it may be that only a leftist reading of a story is possible. We wish to avoid this kind of narrowness, this parochiality, which is the purview of the average leftist today. We have seen also that a subversive reading begins with dishonesty, with moral assumptions about the content of the text. In an honest reading, we try to bring nothing to the text but our hearts. Francis Bacon wrote that it pleaseth God to apply himself to the capacity of the simplest. There is a simple, straightforward reading of a story like Georgia Buddha. It doesn't require any deep thought. It only requires an openness to ideas and to life. And to possess this openness, we must feel what the author has felt in the act of writing. To write from the heart with sincerity and honesty means the author must feel every single moment of his story from every perspective within it. He must live each moment, feel its weight, its emotion, its intention, and the artful reader must do the same. And let us not pretend that this is easy. Such an act of reading requires patience, devotion, and time for reflection, small sips from a strong drink. We are talking about literacy, and as reactionaries, we may consider mass literacy to have been a mistake. Perhaps by giving everyone the ability to read, we have dragged something precious and rarefied down into the mud. Anyone can learn to read words, but it seems that very few among us can learn to read ideas. Goethe believed in this kind of elitism. He divided people into what he called puppets and natures. He said the majority of people were machines playing a part. I think this is a hazardous idea, a hazard to a man who holds it, because to hold it is to risk self-aggrandizement. We can only recoil from a man who walks around believing he has a monopoly on autonomy. To believe this about yourself is to set yourself up for a fall. And paradoxically, 
it seems that a deep and abiding humility is a necessary precondition to being what Goethe called a nature. Chinese communists used to believe that one man in 20 had leadership capacity, about 5%. And if they captured prisoners of war, such as in Vietnam, they would isolate all the officers from the rest of the men. And they believed that the men would naturally look at certain others in their number instinctively, that everyone would have an intuitive understanding of who their leaders were. And then they would isolate those men as well and put them in with the officers. And they'd do this until no leaders were left. The leaders, they thought, could be molded, re-educated, and they were put through a battery of psychological manipulations, which I have described elsewhere. The regular men were simply imprisoned. There was no value in trying to train their minds because they would always fall in line behind the leaders. Suppose all this is true, that Goethe and the CCP were looking at the same phenomenon. But what it means is that leadership capacity, being a nature, having your own internal self-propelling vitality, is really a kind of sensitivity. It means you are vulnerable to ideas. It means ideas can take hold of you and possess you. This sounds counterintuitive, because if we think of these great robotic masses as people who are possessed by propaganda, possessed by ideas, but this is wrong. The masses are not possessed by ideas. They are enthralled to power. Their ideas can change every week, not according to any coherent logic, but purely in response to the whims of the powerful, to those who can believe in ideas. If you think you have this power, then you should see it as a liability. Because there's no such thing as nobility without obligation. I'm not talking about obligation to others, I'm talking about an obligation to yourself. If you have a weakness, you need to be aware of that. You need to admit it honestly to yourself. And to the best of your ability, you have to compensate for it. We pretend that anyone can change their mind when faced with superior arguments. But in reality, Logic and data are both displays of power. Both can be used to lie, and this is very easy, in fact. The ability to marshal arguments in favor of a cause is a demonstration of power. And when most people submit to these things, to arguments and logic, they're really submitting to power. But if you're a natural-born leader, if you have your own nature, then it seems you can differ from the herd. This isn't so much the power to adopt a rival ideology as the power to invent your own ideas. These two things are easily and usually conflated. Many people think choosing one school of thought over another makes them independent, and that's clearly wrong. But for those who do have that capacity, the usual result is being hanged as a heretic, not celebrated as a philosopher. So it really is a liability. I don't think it's bad to be a mechanical man. I don't think one type is inherently superior to the other. In most cases, the man who is in nature amounts to nothing, and he has no choice but to live mechanically, tormented maybe. Often such people are full of resentment. 
often, because they are sensitive to ideas, they struggle to feel real convictions. Often they end up with a false sense of superiority. I think the worst and the best people are probably of this sort. But what I'm also suggesting is that this ability is connected to being able to read, to truly read, to read ideas and not just words. People who have this power will inevitably disagree over the meaning of what they have read. And this leads to schism. A century ago, communist revolutionaries would prohibit the reading of all books and newspapers that were not read. And at the same time, they would demand that people should only attend read meetings. They did this because they understood the character of the mechanical man. And there is likewise a sentiment in the Catholic Church that the sheep cannot be trusted to read God's word without the guidance of a shepherd. When books are expensive, and when the lower, mechanical type of literacy is rare, then schism is rare. Protestantism was an inevitable consequence of the printing press, and I think much of the anti-literacy sentiment that I hear on the right comes from Catholics who want to wish away Protestants. But Protestantism is an essentially technological development, and there's no purely social intervention that could undo the schism. The only option would be to suppress the technology. Why make this analogy? Because phones and wireless internet have caused a similar type of social change, a kind of hyper-Protestantism. And it throws the distinction between mechanical men, men who are enthralled to power, and natures, men who are sensitive to ideas, into very stark relief. And you will notice uh, that men who show some glimmer of independent thought are mostly cranks. Most of their ideas are bad, though they may be original. If you hear this, and you think the answer is to dismantle the network of wireless telephony, then you haven't learned to think like a ruler. The cost of 1 in 20 being rebellious must be weighed against the power to instantly, wirelessly, command the other 19 with alacrity. The elitist argument is the same, no matter who the elites are. And this is the central dilemma that elitists face today. Any argument we make for elitism must contend with the decrepit state of our so-called elites. Those who despise us, journalists, university professors, the intellectual class, will make the same argument when it comes to all great works of literature or art. They'll tell us we must rely on expert opinion, by which they mean their own opinions, naturally. So a populist argument is an argument about the means of control. It's an argument that no one should have power, but no one should be able to control the mass. And anyone who is a bit of a nature, who is sensitive to ideas, will probably tend to identify with this sentiment because they don't want to be controlled. And a populist believes that inside every puppet is a nature just waiting to get free. And that we can achieve a state of utopia if only we can find a way to wake up the individuality and the nature within every mechanical man. This is tempting. This is the root 
of the egalitarian fallacy, and it is always and everywhere false. An elitist argument understands that most people will always be sheep in search of a shepherd. It's not an argument about whether control should exist, but about what should be done with that control. The elite who rule over us may well be a true elite. That is, they are people with power who are enthralled to ideas. It is their ideas, not their existence, to which we object. That they have grown decadent and weak because they face no existential threat, and we, or at least the best of us, could become a better elite. And we are lying in wait, like a tiger in the grass, walking the knife's edge of metabolic catastrophe. Each meal may be our last. In short, our elite nature has been awakened, first of all, by our hunger. On the foundation of such an idea, we must build our house. You are better than women and trans people.